1 Corinthians 11. I've come to, to rely on my GPS unit in my car very much. I used to kind of know my way around. <laughs> now I have to follow the map. On Friday, on my way to the men's retreat, I had a, a business stop to make in, in Seattle, and then, uh, and then I uh, made my way out to visit Glenn out at Monroe, and then down to the camp, and uh, uh, especially where Glenn is. I love to just push that address into the GPS, and it says, turn here, turn there, turn there, and, and there I show up. Before I had a GPS unit, when I would go to Seattle, I had a landmark, and I could find things by the landmark, and that was the Space Needle. Um, that's a little more difficult than it used to be because of new uh, high-rise buildings, but in most places in Seattle, you can see the needle, and after you kind of learn a few streets, you can, you can make your way around, even if there's a little bit of wandering about in the process. Um, this song that we just sang talks about a landmark, and it's the landmark of the cross. And the song says, Keep me near the cross. And that's what I want to try to do today as we approach the Lord's Supper, as we reflect on, on Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and, and come to do what he said to do in taking the bread and the juice. Um, I, want to, I want to challenge you to, to be near the cross. I want to challenge you to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, to, to understand the Lord's Supper perhaps a little more fully and and to, to honor him a little better. When we live near the cross, we avoid the arrogance of self-righteousness. Nobody can look at the cross and say, well, I'm pretty good, because none of us deserve that. We can also avoid the waste of self-excuse, which is, well, I don't need to change and grow. That's a wasted life, because God made it possible through the cross we can also avoid the despair of self-condemnation. Jesus died for us all, and he died for us all when we were all in sin. And so there's no need for us to condemn ourselves. God has c condemned Christ. He put his condemnation onto Christ. And Christ has given us a way to stay near the cross, the way to live by the cross. One of those ways is to observe this table. He didn't call it the Lord's Supper. We call it the Lord's Supper. He called it the bread and the cup. But he told us to do it. And we want to read about it and, and learn about it and, and come to it with a, with a heart full of, full of love and a mind full of understanding. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore... Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. 
For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. The Lord's Supper, first of all, is a memorial, not a sacrament. A memorial, not a sacrament. The stated purpose that Jesus gave for the bread and the cup is remembrance. He said, do this in remembrance of me. It is a reminder. It is a refocusing. It is a landmark to say, remember Jesus. Focus on him. Live on him. Worship him. It is a tangible way. God didn't give us very many tangible uh, worship events. Baptism is one. He said, you should be baptized in water to show the death, burial, and resurrection, to show your connection to me. It is a tangible, physical thing that we do that honors the Lord. The Lord's Supper is the other tangible thing that we do. The the baptism, obviously, is only done once. The, The Lord's Supper is repeated many times. And so it's very special. It's very unique. He told us to praise him with with our mouths. uh, But this, he said, take the bread and take the cup and honor me. The Roman Catholic Church declares that this bread and this cup is how, and this is a quote, how Christ is dispensed to us. That is to say, one receives Christ by taking these elements And yet never did the Lord say anything close to that. The Lord said, remember my body, remember my blood shed for the new covenant. And of course, this is made absolutely clear in uh, verses like this. By grace or by a gift you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There is nothing we can do to merit God's favor. And there are many versions of the Catholic doctrine, and what I mean by that, there are many approaches to this table that that want us to think there is something mystical and magical about the elements, and that we actually take them into us and some spiritual thing comes into us. Christ said no. He said, I want you to remember, these are divine illustrations, they're object lessons. I want you to remember it is a memorial. It is not a sacrament. A sacrament is something you do that supposedly would bring salvation to you. There's nothing we can do. There is no work that we can do. Because salvation is a gift that God gives us. We will not receive the body and blood of Christ and gain salvation today. We will not even maintain salvation or keep it active by doing this. We won't get more saved or more spiritual by doing it. We will honor the Lord. We will remember the Lord. We will give worship to the Lord in a way that he told us to do. If you're here today and you've never fully come to the understanding that salvation is only by faith through a gift that God gives, I urge you today to believe in Christ. Don't come to this table with the mistaken notion that you're going to be safe for another month because you've had communion. 
come to this table today saying, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross to pay for my sins. I know you've taken them away because I've put my faith in you. Come to the table with a thankful heart, with a remembering heart, because it is a memorial, not a sacrament. Second thing we need to understand today is this. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of His suffering for us. First of all, the bread reminds us of the abuse that He suffered. Look at verse 24, please. When He had given thanks, He he broke the bread and He said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. The broken is one of those words in the biblical text that doesn't belong in our copies. And I, we, 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 talk, we talked about the idea of a textual variant a couple of weeks ago and the idea that in the copying of scriptures, different people added a few words. Now, I, I just saw a special this morning that was talking about this and, and the man who's a tremendous expert in all of these manuscripts that are around, he said, he said there's no doctrinal difference in any of these variations uh, of the manuscripts of the Bible. It's just that people have... Like here, somebody said, well, he broke the bread. His body must have been broken, and they added that in. Now, there's a theological problem with that, and that's the reason that I know this word doesn't belong here, and it's because of what Psalm 22 speaks of when it says that, excuse me, Psalm 24, it says, not a bone of him shall be broken. And then Psalm 22 speaks about all of his bones being displaced or being out of joint. When Christ was nailed on the cross, they didn't break his bones. The nail went through his soft tissue around the bones. But the result of all of the abuse that he took was that all of his joints were out. How painful is that? How gruesome is that? That's part of the point. Jesus is saying, listen, remember that my body, literally it should read, is given for you. My body went through all kinds of things for you. Uh, This last week, there was a basketball player in the March Madness, the college playoffs, who fell down and broke his leg, and it was so gruesome looking they wouldn't even show it on the news. He broke his leg, and one of the bones came out sideways. And some of his players around him took their shirts and covered their heads because it made them sick to look at it. And that was just one bone protruding Can you possibly imagine what Jesus looked like or went through? It's gruesome. He says, I want you to remember how gruesome it was for me. I want you to remember how I was abused. Jesus was slapped. His beard was pulled out. A crown of thorns was put on his head by the soldiers who arrested him. And then they took a reed or a stick and they hit the crown. And you can imagine what the thorns would have done as they went into his head. He was whipped with a device called a cat of nine tails, which would be a a handle with, with nine pieces of leather with sharp things embedded in the leather, glass or metal, 
and he was beaten with that. He was laid open with that. History tells us that that beating was so bad that many who were beaten like that died. He had to carry his own cross, maybe just the cross member. He had to carry it from the courthouse to the place of execution. He was so weak he couldn't do it, so they constrained somebody to do it for him. And then he was nailed on the cross. The way people died on the cross was by asphyxiation. They didn't normally beat them and so on before they put them on the cross. They nailed them on the cross and they let them hang there for days. Days. And what would happen was you, you're, you're hanging there, you have to, in order to breathe, you have to hold yourself up like this and as you would get weak, you wouldn't be able to lift yourself up to breathe and eventually you would die of asphyxiation. You would have the air squeezed out of you. Do you remember when they came at the end of the crucifixion they, they came to break the legs of the people who had been crucified because it was the Passover and they said, hey, or it, it was the Sabbath coming the next day. They said, we don't want these guys hanging on the cross on the Sabbath. Hurry up and get this over. Normally they would have hung there for several days. So the soldiers came with a big stick or, or a hammer and break the legs. So they would have their legs broken like this and then, then they, would, they would sag down and not be able to breathe. And they would die from asphyxiation. When they came to Jesus, you remember, they, they looked at him and they said, he's already gone. But they had to make sure he was already gone. So they took a spear and they poked the spear in his side and, and the Bible says water and blood came out. And Jesus wasn't placed up high on a cross. Jesus was at eye level. They didn't put people way up there. People came right around, and they went right up to him and said, well, you think you're something. Why don't you just come down from there? And the guys on the crosses next to him said, yeah, if you're something, save yourself and us. That's a gruesome thing. That's a terrible thing. And that is exactly the point. Jesus said, took bread and he, and he broke it and he said, look, this is my life. I'm, I'm, I'm giving it out to you. There's nothing left. I've given it all. And he says, when you eat that bread, I want you to think about that. I want you to, I want you to just remember, I, I gave everything I had. I went through terrible abuse and we can imagine, you know, we can imagine humanly, in fact, we talk about it even in warfare, we talk about heroes, and of course the, the, the biggest medal for heroism, the, the Medal of Honor, most of the people who receive the Medal of Honor receive it posthumously after their death because they've done something so courageous and unimaginable that they died in the process. And we look at those men and those women and we say they're heroes, you know, the, the stereotype would be the Secret Service agent who throws himself in front of the president to take the bullet. And if we would think about that, we would go, wow, if somebody did that for me, that would be just incredible. Well, somebody did do that for you. And that's the point. We're supposed to remember, oh, Jesus took the bullet for me. Jesus took eternal punishment for me. 
He suffered physically in a tremendous way for me. And when I come here, that's what I'm supposed to be thinking about. I'm supposed to be saying, thank you, Jesus. I don't deserve that. But I thank you. I praise you. I worship you. The bread is supposed to remind us of the abuse that he suffered. The cup reminds us of the death that he experienced for all of us. As I studied this week, I I learned something new. Um, I shouldn't be surprised because it happens pretty regularly. God doesn't use the word wine to refer to this juice except in one text. Jesus always refers to it as the cup. Now, I'm I'm not making a thing about non-alcohol and alcohol. That's not my point. My point is that he said the cup, the cup, the cup. Why would he use that word, the cup, so much? I think he used it because of what we see here in Matthew 26. Jesus came to them to a place, came with the disciples after the, that last supper with them, comes out into Gethsemane, the, 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 the place where they pressed olives. The olive press is what Gethsemane means. And said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. The cup... The cup, I believe, that he's talking about is summarized here in Matthew 27. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, being God, could look forward and see what was coming. He knew the physical abuse that he was going to suffer. And he knew he was going to be nailed on the cross. And he knew that while he was there, God was going to pour out his wrath for the sins of mankind and you and I. And he knew there would come a time when God, as it were, turned his back and just dumped all that sin on him. And he knew he would experience spiritual death for us. Spiritual death is separation from God. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. What was God doing when he turned his back on his son? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God poured out his wrath for our sin on Christ, and Christ experienced physical and spiritual death for us. And so when he says, will you remember me, he's asking us to remember that his death was spiritually painful as well as physically painful. The creator of the universe experiencing death. He says, will you remember that? Will you remember how I suffered for you? But the cup also gives us one more thing. The cup also reminds us of what Christ gives to us. 
what he brings to us. Look at verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 11. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The blood element relates to the death that I was talking about. Now he also talks about the new covenant. What is the new covenant? Well, I think Hebrews 8 summarizes it well. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Now, I I realize that says for Israel. God made this promise to Israel, but they rejected Christ. God has put them aside temporarily while he has turned his attention to us who are in the main non-Jewish people. And he offers us the blessings that he intended for his own chosen people. He has given them to us. And that blessing is summarized in this term, the new covenant. It includes the forgiveness of sin and the creation of a new life in Christ because Christ paid our sin debt with his blood. That is, when he talks about blood, Christ signed the new covenant in his own blood. That is him saying, here is the agreement. It's a legal agreement between God and man. If you will believe in Christ as your Savior, God will take away your sins and give you new life. God has committed himself to this. It's what we call being born again. It's what Jesus called being born again in John chapter 3. Is that worth remembering? Is that worth thinking about in Scripture and prayer and song? Christ has gone farther than any person has ever gone for another person, and he deserves our worship through his table. That's why the Lord's Supper is a privilege we must honor. Look at verse 27. Therefore, because, if I was to summarize, because this is... This is remembering the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and and all that he suffered and all that he brought to you because that's what it's about. If you eat this bread or drink this cup in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And so first of all, we honor the Lord by our participation. And he says, when you participate, you should do it in a worthy manner. Now, some people would look at this and say, well, I just don't think I'm worthy. Um, To say I am worthy would be similar to saying, uh, I wrote a book called Humility and How I Achieved It. And there are people who, who, who look at the Lord's Supper and say, oh boy, I just don't, I don't think I deserve this. But God obviously believes we can be worthy because he has commanded us to do this. And God hasn't told us anything in the scripture to do that's not possible by his spirit. And so we look and say, God wants me to participate. This is not an optional endeavor for the Christian. What's optional about it is the timing. God didn't say every week, every day, every month, every year. He didn't say that. But he said, when you do this, and you should do this, you do it for me. You do it to remember me. Now, he says it's possible to do it in an unworthy manner. 
What, what, would, what would make us unworthy? Look back with me to verse 17 of this chapter. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. This is the problem in this church. Since you come together and the result is worse. In other words, you come together for worship and people go out in worse shape than they came in. Well, we don't want that. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must be, a, there must be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I shall not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also receive from you, that the Lord on the same night. And he goes right on. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. And he's also talking about what they called, or what we've come to term, the agape feast that they had before the Lord's Supper. It would appear that their common way of having church was they came together and had a meal, and then they had a worship service that included the Lord's Supper. Now, the sin that he is condemning them for happened downstairs in the fellowship hall. He said, you come together, and one guy is stuffed, and another guy is starving. One guy is drunk, and another guy is thirsty. Now, why would that be? That would be because of the different classes of people in the church. Now, in our country, in this part of the country, we, we at least think of ourselves as all middle class. We all know that there's different incomes represented in the church, and nobody knows who, who really makes what, and that's fine. But we're all kind of in the same boat. We aren't, you know, way down, way up. And when we come to a potluck supper, we all bring something, and we all share something. I can remember as a young man... At least one family in our church brought a roast beef at the fellowship dinner and sat in the corner and ate their roast beef and didn't share it. Now that's the kind of thing that was going on here. Only it was going on here because people, I mean it's not just a matter of, well they had roast beef and they had hamburger. They had roast beef and they had nothing. Because they're poor people. They're slaves who got saved. Maybe it's, maybe it's this rich guy and his slave coming to church. I don't know. And so the sin that was going on in the Corinthian church is what we might call uh, prejudice or partiality or, or class distinction. And, and so they had that kind of an environment. Then they came to receive the Lord's table. And, and Apostle Paul said, hey, folks, that's messed up. And he said, in fact, this kind of class distinction and partiality is a sin. And so you're coming to this table with sin on you. And you're coming here quite piously to say, oh, I remember the Lord Jesus who died for my sins. And, and if I was to expand this, the Apostle Paul's standing there saying, then confess your sin and change your behavior. Then come and worship. Let me make this really personal. I heard a few weeks ago that I 
that I bruised somebody in preaching. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Let me bruise you again. Let me bruise myself today. Are there people sitting here you don't like? Then you've got the Corinthian sin. As you heard the words, love your enemy, a few weeks ago out of the scripture, did you say, no way am I loving that person or that person or that person? Are there kinds of people you wish would not come to our church? I knew of a church many years ago, a friend of mine who had been a youth pastor alongside me went out to this little mission church. People would come visit their church, be there a couple of weeks, and they're gone. And this was a small town. There weren't a lot of churches. And he began to check things out with people. And you know what he found out? When somebody new would come to church, some of the people that were there would go to him and say, now you're not our kind of people. You should not come back here. Would it surprise you to know that that church isn't in existence anymore? Are there kinds of people you wish wouldn't come to our church? Certain ethnic backgrounds, political persuasions, people who don't follow all your ways of applying God's word? Do you believe you're better than some people? Because if you do, you're falling into the same trap the Corinthians fell into. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, don't do that. The rule for us is to love one another. Now, yes, well, there has to be confrontation at times. Certainly there's the confrontation of the word. I'm not standing up here today saying, oh, it's okay. You can do anything you want to do. Because there are guidelines in the scripture that we have got to follow. There are righteousness and sin that we have to, to uh, follow and, and, and flee from. But the, this principle gets just a little bit broader. Turn with, back a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. See, the whole book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is addressing these divisive issues and all kinds of misconceptions that were going on in the church. And in chapter 3, he says, Brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual people, that is, righteous people, but I had to speak to you like fleshly or like unsaved people, as to babies or immature people in Christ. Why? He said, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you're not able to receive the solid meat of the word. And even now you're not able, for... You are still fleshly or carnal, for where there is envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal or fleshly and behaving like mere men? There's a principle here that comes to bear at the Lord's Supper and this word unworthy, and the principle is this. When you live in sin, you are living like an unbeliever. You can't just say, well, you know, here's 99 sins I've gotten rid of, but this one I like to hang on to. When you, anytime you allow sin to remain, you are unspiritual, you, and, and, and that's what it means to be unworthy. It may be that particular sin of, of class distinction or partiality, or it may be any sin, but when we come to the Lord's table, there needs to be a, a righteousness between us and God. It starts at salvation, and it's maintained by confession. It's maintained by confession. 
None of us lives a perfect life every day. Maybe this morning you had a bad word with the wife, the husband, the child. Who knows? And you're sitting here right now thinking, oh boy, I wish I hadn't done that. Well, you know what? That can be taken care of between you and the Lord right now by saying, God, I sinned. And that is what confession is. It is to agree with God about your behavior. And when you say, I did wrong, 1 John 1, 9 says he cleanses all of that away. And now you're clean and ready. Now, maybe you need to apologize after church today. Maybe you need to make things right. That, that, that needs to happen too. But as you come to this table, there needs to be a confession that brings a cleanness of soul. If not... If we come in here sinful, if we come in here saying, well, I know Lunsford said this, this isn't going to get me saved, but I'm going to take it that way anyway because he doesn't know what he's talking about. If you come with that heart, you are coming in an unworthy manner. John MacArthur offered a stunning analogy that I think will, will bring this to, our, our, to the front of our mind. He said to trample our country's flag is not to dishonor a piece of cloth, but to dishonor the country it represents. We know when we see terrorists around the world burning a flag, we know that's not just a piece of cloth being burned. We know that's them saying, we hate America. To come here with sin, to with sin in your heart, is to burn the flag for Jesus. it dishonors the one in whom we are supposed to be celebrating. The Lord is honored when we take this seriously. Look at verse 29. For he who eats, eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, for this reason many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. What he's talking about here, and if you have the King James, there's an unfortunate translation of a word there. It uses the word damnation. For he who eats or drinks in an unworthy manner drinks damnation to himself. It shouldn't be translated that way because the word is the same word used for judgment in every other place in this text. It's the same word. It simply means to make a, to make a judgment, to evaluate and to come to a conclusion. And the way we, we understand what is this judgment talking about is as we go down to verse 32. When we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord. What is the chastening of the Lord talking about? It's talking about this concept of what we call a, a spiritual discipline from the Lord. My son, do not despise the chastening or the... Literally, it, it's, and it's not... The thing we've really got to understand here, folks, is this is not punitive. The chastening or discipline of the Lord is not punitive. Class... Who did God punish for our sin? What? Jesus. Say it like you mean it. Who, who did God punish for our sin? Jesus. Yes. Is there any value to punishing you for your sin? Are your sin going to get any more punished? Can he possibly do anything to you that he didn't do to Christ? No. This is not about punishment. It's about training it's about, it's about getting us to come back onto the right path. Now, yes, it may be a negative experience. 
I mean, it, it may start out as just a simple uh, reminder from a friend or, or a stronger rebuke, and then it may come in the form of some physical calamity that just jolts us awake, and we say, oh man, I've been going the wrong way, I've got to get back over here. But it's not punishment, he's not making you pay for what you did, he's saying, hey, come back! Don't walk in sin. It's bad for you. It's like the parent who says, don't play in the street, Johnny. And if Johnny plays in the street, the good parent will go out and give Johnny a little warming up on his behind. So the next time, Johnny will go, that isn't going to work out. <laughs> and that's what God does to us. Because he wants you to see that street of sin and go, that's not going to work out. That's the judgment and chastening being spoken of. And he says, if you come to this table and you ignore the warning that says, confess your sin, be right with God. And if you say, I don't care, oh, I just want to eat that bread and drink that juice, and I don't care about any of that stuff, then God may very well come along and spank you. Not to punish you, but to get you to go, wait a minute, this is significant. This is the body and blood of Christ represented, and I need to, I need to honor that. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us. We paid them respect. Shall we not much more be readily in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. God doesn't do this, ultimately he doesn't do it for himself, he does it for us. The discipline of, the discipline of God is restorative, not punitive. And so what does he say here specifically happens? He says, if you ignore this warning and come in an unworthy manner, many are weak, Many are sick. Many have died. That's what the word sleep means as applied to the believer. I had an older pastor when I was a young man in the ministry say, I hate to hear the hospital report on Monday morning after communion. Man, I had never thought of that in that way before. What? Does God spank us hard every time we sin in regard to this? I have no idea. I have no ability to quantify what happens to you, whether it's from God or some other thing. I just know, folks, that part of the fear of the Lord is to say, you know what, I, I respect God so much and he is so much the authority in my life that I am not going to do wrong because he will get me back into the right path somehow and I don't want that. I want to just stay on the right path. How do we avoid, how do we avoid the discipline of God? We do it by self-examination. Look at verse 28. Let a man examine himself. And so let him eat. I, I hope you note here that there's no, that there's no allowance. Hey, I'll come back to that in just a minute because I've got a great quote I want to read for you. Self-examination that results in worthiness can only mean that any sin that is found is confessed. And I talked about this already, but here's the verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful thing. 
God doesn't say now to get ready for this Lord's Supper. I want you to crawl on your knees up to the platform and kiss the cross and and beg for my forgiveness or some other foolishness. He says, no, confess your sin. I will cleanse you and you will be right. I've I had Barb make a little diagram here, and I, I, I don't know if this is a mental image you have, but I hope it'll become one. Um, when I accept Christ as my Savior, I am in an open and free and connected relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When I sin, I am still in a relationship with God, but my relationship is clouded. It's clouded, much, much the same as any two human beings who one would offend the other and now there is this problem between them but they're still friends or maybe they're still family members and, or they're still co-workers but there's this cloud between them and it has to be taken care of in order for the relationship to be restored and moved on. God doesn't throw us out of the family and say try again next week. This is when the discipline comes in and he says, now don't live that way, don't stay there. Confess that sin. And when we confess, the cloud is removed and our relationship is open and free and blessed again. Self-examination. It's not up to me to examine you. It's up to you to examine you. This first confession is made at salvation. The first time that we say, I am a sinner and Christ is a Savior, that's the first at salvation. But then it continues on throughout our life, day by day, week by week. And it ought to be here. Even if you got up this morning as I did and spent time in the Word and prayer, when you come here, there ought to be time. And that's why the the elements are passed and the music is played so that you have time to just stop and say, God, is there anything between you and me? Is there any cloud between you and me? Have I forgotten something? And if you come with an open heart, I know that God will will bring to your mind whatever you need to confess. And if there's nothing there, then just say, thank you, Lord, for helping me to walk with you. I know it's all because of Christ. And just offer him worship. But I want you to note something. And I love Harry Ironside, a famous pastor from years ago, his comment on this. He says, observe that it does not say, let a man examine himself And then let him refrain from participating. But let a man examine himself and then let him eat. No matter what he sees in himself of that which is evil and unholy, if he judges himself before God and confesses his unholiness, he is in a state of soul where he is free to participate. I have known men over the years... uh, Uh, I can't think of any women off the top of my head, but I have known men who just did not have the Lord's Supper for several months because there was something wrong in their soul. Do not console yourself that that is a proper state of being. Do not think you are being righteous by not taking the Lord's Supper. (laughs) You're dishonoring the Lord twice. He died so that sin could be taken care of. Now take care of it. And then worship. Christ commanded the observing of this ritual, do this in remembrance of me. I saw a small dog this week as I was driving up toward the house. A little, like a pug dog or a little miniature bulldog, about this tall. And he, he's standing there on the side of the road. 
And he, he's kind of looking down. He's just kind of standing real still. His owner was sitting on a bench with a, with a leash. And he had a hoodie on. <laughs> you know, sweatshirt. It, it, little sleeves were down to about here. And that little thing over his head. And he just, it just looked like he thought, oh, every time I go out, I have to wear this stupid thing. God, so embarrassing. I wish I was somewhere else. I'm out in public. Do you wish you were here today? Are you happy to be here and remember the Lord? If you've never believed in Christ, or if that's been fuzzy with you, would you, before these elements are passed, would you just say, Lord, I believe in you as my Savior. I, I let go of every other thing in my life, and I believe in you. And if there's sin to confess, would you confess it? And would you worship him today?